Turn your love of babies and bellies into cash. If you love babies and bellies and want to provide care and support to families, then Bebo Mia's webinar is the right place for you. Get answers to those burning questions like how to be the voice you wish you had at your birth and how babies and families can be supported by doulas. Learn all about the different kinds of doulas. You can work in fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, or just enjoy working with those squishy babies. Supporting families by becoming a birth worker, aka doula, is perhaps an option that hasn't even crossed your mind. And that's why we want you to join this webinar. You can have great earning potential while doing something you love. Bebo Mia is the one-stop shop for education, community, and mentorship. Reserve your spot today at bebomia.com slash free webinar. Hello, hello. I cannot believe 2022 is almost over. We only have one episode left of the year, but this episode is going to be amazing. So we're so happy that you're still with us for 2022. And we can't wait until 2023 because we're going to have really fun things coming. So I want to share with you, you've probably heard in a little bit in the past that I've been having some co-hosts on the show and it's so fun to have different voices and people from all over the world sharing reviews and being involved in these stories. And these are all our, our certified birth doulas, which is really fun and birth workers. Um, so today our special guest is Madison and it is so fun to have you, Madison. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm so excited to be here, Julie. I am a cesarean mom myself and I haven't had my VBAC yet, but taking your class and being able to support VBAC moms better through your class was just amazing. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I would love to turn the time over to you to read a review. Yeah. So this review, the title is Confidence Boost, and it is from a user named Music Feeds the Soul. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, and the review says, Megan and Julie, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've built here. Story after story, my confidence in myself and my plans for a successful VBAC were lifted. I learned so much from you. And then she put in parentheses, cervix nerd over here. <laughs> and your experience and wisdom watching women of strength birth the way they desire. I hired a doula for my VBAC baby boy's birth born on 8-2022. So like not that long ago. Oh my goodness. Not long at all. And congratulations. Felt, yes. Congratulations. That's so exciting. She says, and I felt so in control, so confident in my body and my ability to advocate for myself in the hospital room. All thanks to you. Got my V back with four exclamation points. Love it. <laughs> Feeling him come out of me and having him onto my chest was the greatest single moment of relief and joy I've ever felt. Thank you for being there along this journey. Big hugs to both of you. Oh, that give like that seriously just gave me chills. Like it gives me chills to hear that. That Same. makes me so happy for her. And thank you so much for leaving a review. We really do love these reviews. We like to share them on the podcast. We love hearing them. Some of them even make us cry. They give us chills. Um, they keep us going. Like they keep me going. I love them. Like when I see a review come in, I'm like, okay, yes. Like there is a reason why I'm here. And the reason why I'm here is because I'm doing this and it is helping and I make a difference. And that's, I love it. And I know that sounds kind of like silly because I'm like, like I make a difference, but that's what I want to do. I want to try and make a difference in people's life and let them figure out how they want to birth and educate them and empower them. No matter if that's very, you know, cesarean or VBAC. Um, so I love it. Please leave your reviews, Google, email, Facebook. You can Instagram us, Apple podcasts. I think even Google Apple or not Google Apple play Google play or whatever the one is for Android. Um, I think you can leave a review there as well. They really are so appreciated. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. 
Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Okay, we are going to get into Megan's story. I just want to share a little bit about her. Um, her feedback baby actually is, um, how do, let's see, Megan, did you say 12 weeks old? Yeah, she'll be 12 weeks this Sunday. Yeah, 12 weeks, <laughs> so just little, just little. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's here recording with us, which is so awesome. So she is living in England. And some of her highlights of her birth is um, a long labor, <laughs> following intuition. And then, uh, you know, that term that we're all labeled failure to progress. She also had mm. that label, um, which I don't love. I've also had that label personally. And then she actually is a mental therapist by trade. So Megan, I, I feel like at the end too, like, I'd love to know more about that, yeah. but let's turn the time over to you to get this amazing story out here with the world. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that introduction. And I'm really happy to be able to share my story because I listened to so many birth stories during my pregnancy. um, And it was really, really helpful for me to feel confident and prepared um, as much as I could be to have um, a feedback. Um, So I have two uh, baby girls, um, like Megan said, one that just turned 12 weeks and that's my VBAC or is about to turn 12 weeks and that's my VBAC. Um, And then my first baby girl is now a toddler. She's two and a quarter. Um, So the babies are just over two years, but two years and one month apart. And that baby was born, my toddler was born by cesarean because she was breech. So she was born June, 2020, right, you know, a couple months after the start of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was breached throughout the entire pregnancy. And actually my husband was born breached. So I just kind of had a hunch throughout, you know, the pregnancy towards the end, especially when it started to be more of a concern to the OB that I was seeing that she was going to stay breached. And I did, you know, like so many women try everything to get her to flip, but she didn't. And did, did your provider offer to, I was am curious too, did your provider offer any help on their end? Yeah, they offered um, the ECV, so the mm-hmm. external cephalic version, I think is what it stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But they said that it wasn't, like the success rate, I think is only one in three for first time moms. So fortunately, it wasn't, I had heard a lot of stories about that being really horrendous. Um, it wasn't a bad experience for me, and it just didn't work. So yeah. I think mm-hmm. I think my provider was pretty gentle about it, which is why it didn't actually hurt, hurt that badly for me. But he, you know, gave a couple of pushes to try to turn her around and just could really tell because of her position. I think her little um, was right underneath my hip and he was like, nope, she's not budging at all. So, so yeah, I tried everything on my own and then we did try the, the ECV too. Uh, and I actually was okay with having the scheduled cesarean. I might have tried to find another provider, but from my research that I was living in Colorado at the time. Um, that's where I'm from. That's where I'm living oh, right now. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, we're a military family, so we we were in Colorado Springs. Gotcha. But from my research, there wasn't a provider in Colorado. There, um, Doctor Stu in California, which is my home state. I would have mm-hmm. been, but it was it was the start of the pandemic, and I was like, yeah. I'm not going to travel states. I don't even know no. about getting on a plane right now. Like it just wasn't going to happen. And I and I was okay. I was okay. I liked, you know, I, I'm a planner. I liked the idea of having it planned. We could get, you know, kennels arranged for our, for our dogs. And I just kind of found the silver lining in it and, and was okay, was okay with it. But the morning of, you know, my, my firstborn's birth, I asked my OB, how long do I have to wait to get pregnant? Because we knew we wanted, you know, at least one more baby in order to be a good candidate for a VBAC. So I had on my mind before my, you know, before the even mm-hmm. the cesarean that I would want to have a VBAC. And his answer, interesting was on, interestingly, was only six months. So I was surprised to hear that, you know, my, my babies, you know, are, are much further apart than that. But I know that's a big question that a lot of a lot of women mm-hmm. do ask is how long do I have to wait in order to have a VBAC? And he said just six months. 
Well, um, and there's, there are different studies out there. So that's the crazy thing is some of them say like after six months, there's no difference. And then some people say, oh, if it's before 18 months, it's, you know, really high. So that's, it's kind of interesting, like how provider to provider, you'll find that different number. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting. He seemed like he was a pretty conservative, he, he um, wouldn't have even entertained the idea of a vaginal breech birth. Like he was, he seemed pretty traditional. He was kind of an older, older provider. Um, so yeah, so six months in, he, he seems like he was conservative too. So mm-hmm. um, the, the cesarean was a good experience for me. It really wasn't bad. There was nothing about it. Even the recovery, you know, went well. It is kind of a strange thing just to one, you know, one minute, it's like, here's, it's so fast, you know, and now here's your baby. Like they just kind of produce this baby from you. So that part, you know, is a little bit strange. And, and, you know, I, I didn't feel super connected to the birthing experience. And I thought, you know, maybe that, that has something to do with it, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad. There was nothing about it that was bad, you know? And like I said, even the healing was, was fine. It took me maybe about three weeks to kind of start to feel, you know, more myself and like I could move without pain. I did have hypertension during that pregnancy, um, gestational hypertension, and it, it came back postpartum. So that was like a little complication, but that wasn't related, I don't think, to the cesarean at all. So yeah, so moving on uh, to the, the VBAC, uh, the, the birth that I'm you know most interested in talking about today. So got pregnant when my firstborn was, I think, about 15 months. And the pregnancy was super, super smooth sailing. I didn't even have the hypertension. And, you know, knew that I wanted to be back, like I said, before I even got pregnant. So that was always the plan and uh, the consultant. So the way the care uh, works here is you, you're seen by midwives. So, so in England. So we moved as a family to England in uh, August of 2020. So when my, my um, toddler was only nine weeks old, because like I said, we're a military family. So uh, we got assigned here. Um, so the care does look quite different. Uh, here, here in the UK, but it's midwifery led. Um, but you're seen by a doctor if you have any risk factors, and and being having a previous cesarean is considered, you know, one of the ones where I would need to be seen by a consultant, is what they call them. Um, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think they're considered obstetricians, but by a doctor. So I was talked about my birth plan at, at 12 weeks during that first ultrasound that they offered, and they said that they would be supportive of the VBAC, so that that felt really good, and then you know, around kind of the middle of the pregnancy, my husband and I started to talk a little bit more about the birth plan. And I started to have some anxiety about who was going to watch our toddler while, you know, we um, had the baby since we're here and don't have any family here um, in England. Uh, And my husband suggested and kind of started to almost push the idea of a home birth, um, which really surprised me from him. I didn't even think it would be something that he'd be comfortable with. So for it to be his idea came as a surprise. Um, But I started to look a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My husband surprises me all the time in in really cool ways. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, so yeah, so I started to look more into that as an option and to talk to the midwife um, that I was working with. And she kind of explained to me that it was considered against medical advice since I had the cesarean. But I think in the UK, they're actually required I might be wrong by that but they to offer a a home birth unless you know so so I could continue to explore it even though it wasn't necessarily encouraged so around I would say like 28 weeks maybe 30 weeks I told them that I was interested in in planning that and met with a consultant that same doctor who I think was basically trying to talk me out of the idea Um, at 34 weeks, my husband came to that appointment and we both felt like, no, let's continue to move forward with the plan. So one of the things that, one of the things that I think is, is really beautiful about the way that they do birth here in the UK is that while there's not continuity of care necessarily in terms of like seeing the same doctor or the same midwife every time I had an appointment, there is continuity of care in terms of if I had planned a home birth. And then at any point even decided, so if I woke up, you know, the morning that I went into labor and said, no, I want to go to the hospital, I could easily just go to the hospital. So I liked the idea of planning the home birth because it gave me the option of having a home birth and I could change my mind at any point versus if I hadn't planned the home birth, I couldn't wake up and decide, no, I just want to have this baby at home today uh, and have the support of the midwife. So that makes sense. So 
I wasn't necessarily kind of dead set on the, like I said, it was kind of more my husband's idea of having a home birth. But some of the things that did appeal to me about it was one, I knew that I would have some more flexibility of staying home longer with my toddler. And, you know, if, if I felt like, you know, her being around me when I was in labor wasn't scary for her or a distraction for me, then she could even stay. Like I heard a lot of beautiful stories of women having their babies in the middle of the night and then their toddler wakes up and gets to meet the baby and never has to even go anywhere. Um, So that appealed to me. And then also I really wanted a VBAC. I was really set on the idea of a VBAC, even though the cesarean wasn't a bad experience for me. It was just an experience that I, that I wanted. And from the research I had done, you were much more likely to be able to have a successful VBAC if you stayed at home, you know, uh, if you, if you originally planned a home birth, even if you didn't end up giving birth at home. So, so I, I knew that it would help me to avoid kind of that cascade of interventions kind of earlier on. So I wanted, so that was another reason why I wanted to plan the home birth. Um, so, so yeah, so I moved forward with the home birth, even though it was against medical advice, which felt um, there were a lot of things that I, decisions that I made throughout this pregnancy that felt pretty gutsy for me because I'm pretty compliant rule follower. I don't like to ruffle feathers. Like I kind of go with the flow. So it felt courageous for me to be, yes. you know, taking a stand against these different recommendations um, mm-hmm. and, it you know, feels, educating. It feels off, right? It can, especially towards the very end, you know, when providers, so I'll just share here too, my, my baby. So it was against medical advice because for the home birth because of the cesarean. And then also towards the end of the pregnancy, my, I started to have some growth scans actually because I was measuring big. My fundal height was measuring big. So they sent me for a growth scan and then the baby was actually small. So toward, so the baby was measuring small for gestational age. And that was the thing where I'm like, I wasn't actually concerned about the risk of uterine rupture for me. But once they started, because I just wasn't like that just wasn't really a concern for me. I had this feeling that that wasn't, I mean, you never know for sure, but I just didn't feel like that would happen. But once they started to tell me that my baby was small and I had a provider tell me like sometimes small babies are more fragile and I have a hard time tolerating that was when I was like, Oh, like really started to question my decision because I can feel, you know, I have, I'm, I just turned 35. I have 34 years on this planet to build confidence in my body's capabilities, but my baby is just brand new, you know? So anyways, but even at that, I, I, you know, had this feeling that my baby was fine and continued to move forward with, you know, the planned, the planned home birth because she was continuing to grow. Well, so it's just this balance where you don't want to be reckless and you don't want to be overly confident when, you know, you, you do, I at least wanted to be cautious and wise I didn't want to you know just be stubborn and like I said reckless but I also knew deep down that everything was fine and didn't want to be you know scared into making a decision that didn't didn't fit fit for me so so yeah it, it kind of went against my character a little bit and I'm I'm glad that I planned things the way that I did but yeah it definitely did you know take digging deep in terms of like that courage piece. So, mm-hmm. okay. So kind of starting with, I think I shared everything about the pregnancy that I wanted to share. So it was really the baby being small for gestational age and then um, the cesarean that were like kind of the two complicating things in the pregnancy. Can um, I ask a question really quick? Sure. Yeah, please. How, what was like the percentage of growth restriction? Like they, did they yes. say? Yes, yes. So, um, so had the first scan at 34 weeks and the, because of the position of the, the baby. So the sonographer, you know, did the me- measurements and then came, I went back into the waiting room and then came back and grabbed me and wanted to remeasure her head because she said, because of her position, because she was head down, which was wonderful to hear, she couldn't get a great measurement of the head. So the head was measuring several weeks behind. So at that point she was at the the third percentile, which is mm. when they start to consider it growth restriction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had me come back every two weeks. And then from, you know, 36 weeks and onward, she was hovering, she was maintaining 
at the 10th, right around the 10th percentile. It was like eighth percentile, kind of ninth percentile. And then the last one, it was right at the 10th percentile. So she was just barely considered growth restricted or sorry, not growth restricted, small for gestational age. So there is a difference between being growth restricted and, and small for gestational age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was continuing to grow. So when I talked to, because I did talk to the home birth uh, midwife team, about these different concerns. And they said, one, we're not concerned about your cesarean scar at all. That doesn't worry us. And then two, they said they don't necessarily worry about baby size because ultrasounds can be pretty inaccurate unless the baby's not growing or there is, because they also checked, they did like a placenta Doppler. I don't know if they do this in the US because I didn't have that experience Mm. when I when I was pregnant first, if there's any kind of concerns with blood flow to or from the placenta, then, you know, it wouldn't make sense to have a home birth. But if the placenta looks fine, and the baby is growing along their own curve, they don't worry so much about their size. Yeah, um, and totally. I actually, I actually did feel like having a smaller baby, in the end, set me up, I think, for more success with having a VBAC, because, you know, she was, she was smaller, and she came out very cone-headed, which I was grateful for. So I think she did her part to make sure that, you know, she would be able to be born, born vaginally. But yeah, but one provider did tell me sometimes smaller babies can have a more difficult time tolerating labor. And, and that was probably the one thing that I heard um, that made me feel most nervous about, about planning the home birth. But I knew, like, if I at any point didn't feel comfortable with it, I could go straight into the hospital um, and was not dead set at all on staying home. So, um, and can I just say that I yeah. see that a lot, like the difference between how midwives explain risk and how OBs explain risk. Like, I feel like OBs sometimes try to pull on your heartstrings a little bit mm-hmm. to get you to sway one way or the other, where like it yeah. sounds like your midwives were like, this is the reality and you get to make your own decision. Yes. Yes. And I appreciated that. I felt very supported by the midwives, uh, very supported. And if there is, you know, a risk, I want to, I want to know about it, but yeah, exactly. Like you said, I felt like the midwives gave me the information and let me make a decision of my own. Whereas at least one of the doctors that I spoke to was pretty shaming and, and told me, so in, in the end, I did agree. So so I just had a hunch throughout this whole pregnancy. I wanted a 4th of July baby. My baby was born July 3rd, um, mm. but that the baby was going to come on a specific weekend. Um, so I initially did agree to an induction. They recommended induction at, at 39 weeks for small for gestational age. So I kind of felt pressured, honestly, into scheduling this induction at my last appointment. And I knew that I would just reschedule it if I needed to. So I did schedule an induction. I think it was for... Friday, and then called to push it back just by a few days because I had this hunch that the baby was going to come that weekend. So I, I, it was scheduled for Friday, and I went to I um, talked to a doctor about pushing just a random doctor um, that I hadn't met before because, anyways, that's who had called me for the appointment to Monday, and he was very shaming and told me I was putting my baby at serious risk and told me that the placenta was going to stop working if I, and. I got off the phone with it. I, I rescheduled the induction still for Monday, but got off the phone and cried and cried and cried and cried. So I, I was definitely impacted by some of the things that, you know, were said to me, but I also trusted the decisions that I was making and didn't think that I was doing anything really risky by pushing the induction back by just a few days. And I think that something that, that does bother me is that there's a lot of conversation about the risks of not acting, but there's not a lot of discussion about the risks of acting. And, and so in my mind, you know, if, if small babies do have a hard time tolerating labor, then what's it going to be like for her if I get induced? To me, that seems a lot more aggressive. If I'm deciding when she's going to come and maybe she's not ready yet, maybe she wants a little more time to grow. And then also just the different methods of induction can be, can be, you know, more aggressive. Um, and more difficult for a baby. So there was a lot of, like I said, information thrown at me on, you know, how it's, you know, risky and, and not smart to not act, but, but no information about the risk of, in, of induction really was given to me, um, at least verbally, I, I was given some pamphlets that I could look through. But 
I think that's a big piece that's that's missing. And I get that that's, you know, from a place probably of protecting providers protecting themselves, you know, from like a liability perspective. But I, I do wish that I, I just wish that I hadn't been shamed because I spent a lot of time during my pregnancy educating myself. And I just really do feel for women who maybe haven't done that or maybe, and I, and I did feel as confident as I could about the decisions that I was making. And for someone else in a different position where maybe they hadn't educated themselves or to, you know, uh, or didn't feel as complicated, you know, confident in their decision or their knowledge, I, I think they would have been in even a more vulnerable position. And, and I just think it, it breaks my heart that doctors do talk to women in such a vulnerable um, time mm, in their lives, mm, the way mm, that mm, I was smoking. Mm, yeah, so, absolutely. Anyways, that's, that's, that was my biggest kind of complaint towards the end of the pregnancy. Otherwise, I felt like I was empowered, even from so the consultant that I was working with throughout the pregnancy was the same provider. It was just happened to be kind of a random doctor that called me on this one day. And even he, I didn't really like him, his style, but even he, I felt like was like, okay, you're going to do what you're going to do. And at the end of the day, we're here to support you. So I did, you know, appreciate, appreciate that doctor for that, for that fact. So the recommendation is for induction at 39 weeks for babies that are small for gestational age. But by the time I had gone to the the doctor for that final growth scan, I think I was one day shy of 39 weeks. And so the doctor, that doctor, and I decided to schedule an induction for when I was 40 plus one, because I was already, I was already at 39 weeks. And I was like, my baby's growing fine. Like you want me to come in for an induction tomorrow? That doesn't make any sense. So Mm -hmm. he agreed, let's schedule it for 40 plus one. Let's do a lot of, they call them stretch and sweeps here. I think maybe they're called membrane sweeps in the US. I don't know if there's a different term, but stretch and sweeps. Let's do as many as possible between now and then, and then have you come in at 40 plus one. And so I went in for my first stretch and sweep when I was 39 plus one. And the midwife told me, you're not dilated at all. We can't even do a stretch and sweep. She, she tried and it was actually really uncomfortable because my body wasn't ready for it at all. And I started bleeding right after that. And I continued to bleed actually until, until I had, until my baby was born. So I just continued to kind of spot um, so did, that, did hearing yeah. that you were not dilated at all, did that mess with your mental state at all? Or did you know, like, this doesn't necessarily mean anything? Both. It definitely messed with me. And that like the cervical checks, the, my whole labor turned into this, my like head game for me and the cervical checks did not help at all. But I also did know that, you know, cervical checks aren't a crystal ball. I could go and, you know, that it didn't necessarily mean anything about how things would look in the future, but it still was discouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I started spotting, started cramping, started having menstrual cramping kind of throughout the weekend. And that's when the going back, you know, you know, having the induction one week from then felt too rushed because I was like, look, my body's not even ready for a, a stretch and sweep. How am I going to fit in all these stretches? He wanted me to have two to three. How am I going to fit these in? It was really uncomfortable for me. And the fact that I bled, like, didn't feel good for me either. So I was like, I'm not going to schedule one for Monday. I don't feel ready. So I scheduled another one for the following week. And that's why one of the reasons why I pushed the induction back, you know, to to the Monday to when I was 40 plus four, I think is what it was. Anyways, so so yeah, so went back on Friday. So Thursday night. So when I was on my duty, I started to have contractions, I was having cramping all week, but I started to have contractions that felt rhythmic so from 1 a.m to 6 a.m on Thursday night so I guess it was Friday morning I was up having contractions every 10 minutes that were lasting about a minute and they weren't you know painful they were they were they got my attention and they kept me up I was awake for that whole time but I just put like a heating pad on my back it it was like kind of intense menstrual cramps really uh, but they were rhythmic. So I woke my husband up that morning and was like, look, we're having it. Like we're having our baby today. Are you ready to have a baby? And was really excited. And then they fizzled out. So it's basically as soon as I announced that the baby was coming that day, they stopped completely. And so I went back in for that was my the day that I had scheduled that second stretch and sweep. I went back in in the early afternoon for that. And this is when it was even more discouraging. 
And the midwife said in this last week that you've been having all this cramping and you had these consistent contractions, you know, last night, you're still, you know, zero, I still can't even do a stretch and sweep for you. (laughs) So and the method of induction that I had talked to my consultant a bit about that I was the most comfortable with was the fully bulb. And I asked the midwife at the time, like, could you even because Friday was my original date of having the induction scheduled. So could you even put place a fully bulb like right now with me not being dilated at all? And she said, no, like if you were to be like, if you were to have come today, no, we wouldn't have even been able to place a fully bulb. So that was kind of validating. It was discouraging to hear that, but also validating of my decision not to have the induction scheduled for that day, because I think I would have just, you know, had everything packed and then just turned around and gone back home. Cause I, I don't think I would have agreed, agreed to another, another method of induction at that point. So, okay, so that's Friday, still not dilated at all. And I I was confused because I had had all these, you know, what I thought were these contractions. And so the midwife asked me, like, were you feeling the contractions mostly in your back? And I said, yes. And she said, because I think your baby, because it looks like your baby is um, sunny side up. So OP, I think is what it is, like Mm -hmm. a a posterior. Anyways, she faced the wrong way. And that was really discouraging to hear because my first baby was breech. And I was just like, what's with me with these babies that aren't in the right position? And so it, it kind of sounded like I was having back labor in my, and it wasn't productive at all because my baby wasn't in the right position. So went home, kind of a, norm, a normal e- evening, except for the fact that I was exhausted because I had been up for five hours um, the night before and hadn't really slept, you know, since 1 a.m., so I, I told my husband, and I knew that I was going to be having a baby, you know, in the next week. So I told my husband, I, I need to go to sleep at like, at like 7 p.m. So he put my toddler down for bed. And I did. I went to sleep at 7 and woke up at midnight with very similar to the night before these contractions that weren't super intense, but were rhythmic um, and coming in a pattern. And I had talked to oh I hired a doula I didn't mention that but I had talked to her about the fact that the baby was in a bad position and she had suggested some things to get her into the right position and one of the things that she suggested was curb walking so this is gonna make me sound like a crazy person but I when I had insomnia during the pregnancy I live in a very safe neighborhood I would sometimes get up in the middle of the night and go on walks and I I had like an urge to do that this night too so midnight I I got up and went and walked around my little village and did curb walking while listening to the VBAC link (laughs) and it actually in hindsight because my labor was so long maybe wasn't the wisest choice to be exercising essentially before this marathon that I was about to do but I also don't regret it because it was actually like it's a really nice memory of just me kind of alone I was talking to God, talking to my baby and telling my baby, look, I'm ready for you to come. And I was listening to the feedback link, like I said, and my mom even called me because there's this time difference. And I talked on the phone with her for a little bit and it was kind of sweet. And yeah, did a bunch of curb walking and then got home at like 2 a.m., tried to go back to sleep, laid back down, was still having the contractions kind of rhythmically, but similar to the night before where it was like one every 10 minutes. Um, And then... I heard a little pop sound, which I would not have heard if it was during the day, but since it was, you know, at night and I happened to be awake, I heard a little pop sound. This was at 3.30 and and then went to the bathroom and couldn't tell if I was peeing or if I was leaking fluid, but then, you know, went again and kind of, it was kind of becoming more obvious that I was leaking fluid, but it was just a trickle and then was getting excited. So I went downstairs and then not sure what I did for like a half an hour, but then I I did call the hospital and let them know that I think my water broke. Um, And at this point, my contraction started. So as soon as my water broke, I think I had this surge of adrenaline because my contractions really intensified. And I, I like just kind of got into this state, but I did want to wait because the, the morning before I had woken my husband up really early and told him we're having the baby today. I wanted to wait. I decided that 5 a.m. was a reasonable time to wake him up. <laughs> I don't know why, but that was morning and not because I had been up all that night. That was like, long enough. Time. You waited long enough. <laughs> I did. I waited an hour and a half. So I had called. So yeah, I called the midwife and they were going to come by to see if it was in fact my fluid. And so yeah, so woke him up at five. And then the midwife, I think, arrived at like five. 30 and came to my home, which I was so, so grateful that I had planned this home birth because I had midwives come out to my home three different times. And 
I would have at least for the first two times, uh, for at least the first time that 530 in the morning, I would have had to get my, my toddler, or I would have had to go by myself. I don't know what I would have done logistically with my toddler and my husband and how we would have worked that out. But having someone come to my home was just really, really nice. And she, I declined a cervical check at that time. She offered one. Um, but because I, you know, my waters had broken and I know the risk of infection goes up, you know, ever so slightly once it has. Um, so I didn't know if there had been any progress, but at that time, um, but she told me you're clearly, you know, not in labor to where we would stay. So she left um, and said, maybe she was ending her shift at 5 p.m. She was like, maybe I'll see you, you know, before I end my work day. And I was like, maybe, like, won't you definitely? Like, aren't I gonna have this baby? Like, aren't I gonna have this baby in the next few hours? Like, I was confused that she wasn't sure if it would be her that would come back, even though that was 12 hours from now. And I did, I did feel like my contractions went from feeling like noticeable to feeling uncomfortable. Um, and I was trying to do some things to keep to keep them going, because I knew that at this point, you know, once your waters have broken, there's a little bit of this time clock that they want you to be on. And so, um, so I was trying to do things I took a bath, I was trying to do things that were relaxing, I was doing things with my toddler that I thought would, you know, uh, give me an oxytocin boost, um, trying to do things to kind of keep things moving. And I did my contractions did continue. And I had my, I asked my doula to come. I think she came like around 1230 in the afternoon. And as soon as she arrived, I, I don't think it had anything to do with her because she was wonderful and I felt supported by her. I think it was just something about like maybe having someone new come into my home or something. I, I felt like I was like, I started to kind of talk with her and my contractions kind of slowed down. I was still having them, but they weren't as consistent. So things did kind of start start to stall there. And then and my daughter's daycare provider was fortunately happened and like ended up being available. Um, so I had her come and pick her up at three. And my thought was as soon as my daughter is, you know, in good hands and I know she's being taken care of, then maybe my contractions will will pick up and I'll be able to kind of settle into them. Um, but they didn't really, um, they didn't really start to intensify again until I would say early evening. Um, and then I think it was at like 7 p.m. So now we're, what, over 12 hours since my water had broken, maybe uh, 17 hours, somewhere around there. Uh, I had a midwife come back to check me, and she checked me again. Actually, yeah, anyways, I, I don't know if I necessarily would have wanted to be checked, but what she said was they had told me I had a birth pool that I needed to wait till the midwife was there to get into the pool. And so I asked about getting into the pool because my, because I was, you know, wanting other options for kind of coping with the contractions. They said, well, we think it's, we usually recommend checking you first because we don't want you to like, it's a stall your, we want to make sure you're far enough along. So I don't know. I think that they just wanted to check me to see if they needed to stay. Um, and that was kind of a reason for it. So they checked me and I still was not dilated at all. And I was so discouraged. I was like, what is, what is my body doing if it's not having it? Like if I'm not, if this isn't moving forward and, and I was tired at this point and starting to feel, I think more of that pressure of this 3.30 AM deadline that was starting to feel kind of close to needing to go into the hospital. So she suggested that I, that I rest, that I take Tylenol and try to rest. And I did take Tylenol. And I did try to rest, but the only position that I was comfortable in during the contractions um, was on my hands and knees. So this mm. whole time I would be like talking with, you know, my doula, talking with my husband and a they would know that my contraction was coming because I would just collapse onto my hands and knees this whole time. That's what I was doing to cope that with the contraction. almost makes me think about position. Yeah. Yeah. Asynclitic or something. Yeah. Yeah, I think that my body, yeah, that my body knew that that's what needed I needed to do in order to get her into the right position. But it it was the only way that I that's the only way I could cope with with mm-hmm. contractions. So yeah. so I couldn't sleep because every few minutes I was needing like the contractions were coming frequently at this point too. They were, you know, my doula. We decided to call the midwife back out because we felt like we were having here. They want you to have three and ten minutes that last a minute long each. And I was having those. So I felt like, you know, it was time, it was a good time to have them come back. And then to hear that even, even though I was kind of meeting that threshold of them, you know, of calling them back out, I still wasn't dilating at all was really, really discouraging. But that midwife said, you know, feel free, we're going to try to get some rest, feel free 
to go into your pool and, you know, call us back if things change. Otherwise, you know, go into the hospital at three, at 3.30 a.m. So I tried to rest, wasn't able to rest, but we, I did get into the pool and that, so this, I don't know, was probably like, I, I think I tried to rest from like 9 p.m. to 11. I think I ended up getting into the pool at like 11 and was in the pool for, for three hours. This is the part of my birth story that feels kind of dark, if I want to say that. Like I, it felt like, so I was really loud. So even like as soon as my uh, water broke, I started vocalizing through all of the contractions. That's just what my body wanted to do. So by the time I got into the pool, I was like thrashing around in the pool, making crazy animal noises and I felt like a like a killer whale in this pool like and I and I was alone because you know my the doula and my husband were there but I was in the pool by myself and I was in a lot of discomfort and I was just really discouraged I think before I even got into the pool when I was like my husband and I went went to bed to try to, to rest and I told my husband at that time like look I think I just need to go to the hospital and tell them that I want another cesarean not because I want another cesarean and not because I'm in so much discomfort that I can't tolerate this anymore, but because if I, my body is not making any progress right now, I don't know what it's doing and I don't think that it's going to make any progress. Like I've never had the, this experience before of it working. So maybe my body just doesn't work and I don't want to continue this and exhaust myself even further just to have surgery just to need to take care of a newborn. Like, I just, I don't think I can do all of that. So why don't we That's just go off the be cesarean? processing, like, <laughs> while you're in labor. How long has it been at this point? Like, how many hours from, like, when you first noticed the contraction? It, it, it was about the 24-hour mark. Okay. Um, and, and I think that this, like, if there is something about me, I mean, I think labors are just long, and that can be normal and I was really grateful for my doula I think that's like the biggest way that she su supported me was telling me that this is normal because it did not feel normal to me at all but I think that I think yes this is what I was going to say I think if there is something about me that is isn't like so well lined up with the birthing process it's that I am like I kind of do overthink and I think I had a really hard time getting out of my thinking brain and just letting my body do what it needed to do because mm. I was I was, these were all of the thoughts that were racing through my, especially like, I think it, it started with that 24 hour deadline because they had even scheduled the induction at, you know, the 24 hour market. Like I, I felt this time pressure from the very beginning. And I think being in my head in that way was not helpful for my progression. So if there is something about me that I think made the process more difficult, I think it, it's, it's bad. But yeah, I was definitely like, really discouraged before getting in the pool and then being in the pool, you know, while it did feel good to be weightless, like it just felt like kind of like a darker, you know, and it was the middle of the night, um, a darker kind of when my birth felt the most dark. And so at getting closer to like the 3.30 a.m., they had scheduled me for an induction. My, my doula, I think this was like 3 a.m., suggested that I call the midwife's because she could tell that things had intensified for me while I was in the pool, that I called the midwives yet another time and asked them to come out to my home again and check me again to see if I had made any progress and maybe they could stay and I could avoid having to go into the hospital because she knew that, you know, my preference was to be able to stay at home. Midwives came back out and the same midwife that had checked me at, you know, 7 or 8 p.m., whatever time it was, checked me again and said that I still was not dilated at all and hadn't, that I looked the same as I had before. And I was so, so, so discouraged. And so at that point, you know, I, I kind of wanted honestly to go to the hospital because I wanted some support. I wanted some, you know, extra support with pain. Um, and I knew that I needed to rest. Like I, I just, yeah, I, I was at my limit. So, so we did, we, you know, got some things ready and headed to the hospital. I think we got there at 5.30 a.m. Everybody talks about the car ride being horrible. The car ride was horrible. It, it really was because I was only comfortable on my hands and knees and I couldn't be on my hands and knees. Um, I did have a, a TENS machine that I used throughout those, you know, first 27 hours before I went to the hospital. And that was actually really helpful. I recommend a TENS machine to anyone. That really helped me to cope kind of for those, those first, like I said, 27 hours. So got to the hospital and actually getting to the hospital felt like a big relief because we just had extra support. And at that point, my husband and like my husband had been up since 
I had been up since midnight. My husband had been up since 5 a.m. The doula, I think, got up pretty early as well, but came over to my home at like, you know, 12.31 p.m. So, so we had all been up and kind of at it for a while. But getting to the hospital and having kind of some fresh, energized people um, supporting us. And it turns out that we actually were the only people there, which is really unusual because usually the hospitals are pretty overloaded. But we it happened to be a night when I was the only patient there. So everybody brought like all the midwives there brought like a, a special energy to them, which I think is because, you know, they weren't taking care of anyone else and they were truly like energized and fresh. So so that felt good. They had the room set up for me with like like some pretty lighting and it was um, the town that I live in England has a is known for having a really beautiful cathedral and it had a view of the cathedral and and it, I just felt very like welcomed and supported just upon arrival to the hospital so that really helped I was never against the idea of going to the hospital but it, it felt it felt like a, a turning point <laughs> in the labor kind of arriving there um, and having you know such a sweet welcome so I got there and they talked to me about some different options for some pain relief. And they offered me an injection of diamorphine, which they said, you know, can, can cause some problems if for the baby, it can make them a little sleepy. So they don't recommend it if you're about to give birth, but it can be great for kind of these earlier stages of labor when you're not, you know, dilated. Um, and then the, the doctor that was there came in who was, was wonderful. And she suggested that I get on IV antibiotics. I wasn't, I wasn't hugely concerned. In fact, the uh, VBAC link episode that I was listening to while, you know, right before my water broke actually was an interview with Dr. Stu. And he mentioned that the risk of infection only goes from a half a percent to 1% once your water is broken. So I, I didn't think that there was a huge risk of infection, but at this point, you know, the 24 hour mark, I was happy to go into the hospital because I felt like I wasn't coping well with labor. And I, I just needed more, I needed some support with pain management and to rest. But also, I was like, okay, hey, I'm already against medical advice because of the cesarean. I'm already against medical advice for a home birth for the smaller baby. I, I didn't really want there to be like this third risk factor that I was like, fighting up against. So I, I was happy to go into the hospital. At this point, even though I wasn't really concerned about the risk, the increased risk of infection at the 24 hour mark, I kind of felt like it was this like artificial timeline, but again, like didn't want to be like pushing back against like a third, a third uh, reason to not have a home birth. So she suggested IV antibiotics, which I agreed to, and then suggested that I was started on Pitocin. So the fully bulb, I guess, wasn't an option anymore because my water had broken is what she said. Um, and then she also suggested another cervical check, which I didn't really want, but she said it can be helpful for her to take a look at kind of my waters and make sure that they're, they are fully broken. Cause I guess sometimes if they're not fully broken, then there can be like a cushion of the water bag that maybe might prevent, you know, there being that full pressure against the cervix, which can prevent dilation. So she did, she, she said there was a little bit of uh, fluid in between my baby's head and my cervix. And she, you know, broke that. And then they started me on IV antibiotics. I did get this diamorphine injection and was able to rest. I was started on the Pitocin. I was able to rest. The, the uh, diamorphine that they gave me did really allow me to rest in between contractions. I could still feel them. And then they started the Pitocin at 8.30 a.m. And I think around, you know, a few hours into that, the uh, medication started to wear off the injection that I got. It was only supposed to last about four hours. And the Pitocin really started to intensify my contractions. And they were just on top of each other. So before I had been getting a break in between them, these were back to back, which um, was kind of the point. And I did ask them to, to do the Pitocin slow and to tell me before they increased the dose. Um, those were my kind of requests. Because I know that they can sometimes, you know, up the Pitocin, maybe without telling you once you have an IV placed, and then it also, they can maybe increase the dose pretty quickly. So, so they did give me a smaller amount, increased it slowly, but I could, I could feel the contractions intensifying to the point where I eventually asked, um, like, I think around 11am asked them to turn it back down, because I wasn't coping well with the pain from the Pitocin, um, especially after, you know, having such a long labor already. So at that point, the midwife was like, look, either this is going to work or this isn't going to work. And we need to kind of give it, we really need to give the Pitocin an, op uh, like an opportunity to work. So she did want me to keep like the higher dose of the Pitocin. And I said, okay, but I need more pain relief then. And so 
I did get the epidural, which was kind of hard for me because I didn't originally want that. And I also really, because, you know, I thought in my mind, any intervention that I did might decrease my likelihood of being able to have a VBAC. And also in my mind, I still wasn't dilated at all. And so I'm like, look, I'm like needing an epidural when I still haven't dilated at all. And I just kind of felt, I guess it's a little bit pathetic for that. But I did, I got the epidural and that worked really well. I didn't, you know, have any pain hardly at all. I could hardly even feel the contractions. And then at the six hour mark from when they had started the Pitocin, they started at 8.30, they checked me again at 2.30. And I should say like an hour before this, I started to feel a lot of pressure like on my behind. I just started to feel a lot, a lot, a lot of pressure. And I told the midwife that, and she said that was a good sign. When she checked me at 2.30 p.m., she said, the baby's head is right there. And that was just the sweetest like moment for me. I felt so much relief. And um, mm-hmm. after so all much, of it, too, it's yeah. like, yes. <laughs> I, was in, I was in disbelief in just like the right way. Like I was in all the right ways. Like, like I was just so, so, so happy and so relieved. And it was not what I was expecting to hear. Like, honestly, like I was kind of expecting to hear the same thing that I had heard so far, like, oh, still not dilated at all. And I knew at that point that they would start, the recommendation would be for a cesarean. So I was really, really happy. I was overjoyed. So they said what they, what they suggested was that we wait an hour from then they, they give you kind of an hour just to relax and rest. And then you start pushing. So that hour was the sweetest time in my whole labor experience because we, um, my husband and we talked about what position I wanted to push in. And my husband and I decided, finally decided we had the hardest time naming this baby and decided on a name for our baby. And I was just yeah overjoyed. So, so yeah, so then, you know, an hour came and it was time to push. And I decided that I wanted to, to push in like kind of a squatting, squatting position because I had the hands and knees position, even though that was a position I wanted to be in the whole time felt a little bit vulnerable for me. I don't know, like all these people being behind me, like I kind of wanted to see what was going on. So I wanted to be facing forward and I wanted to be squatting and the pushing phase didn't. So I did have the epidural, although I had a really low dose, like they, they, you can do like clicks of it. And I, I had, um, I hadn't, I had done the first two clicks, but hadn't done it in a while. So I was able to do, to feel the pushing, but it didn't feel painful for me. Could have been because of the anesthesia. It could be because I was in someone where that actually felt like a relief. Um, cause I know that's the case for some women, but they started to, this was the frustrating. So one of the frustrating things about being in the hospital is that they have these, they call them CTG monitors here. It's like the non-stress test bands on your tummy that they wanted me to have the whole time. But because I was on my hands and knees throughout the birth, they kept, they kept shifting around and then they'd be concerned about losing the tracing on the baby. Anyways. So when I was pushing in the squatting position, I was leaned forward and the monitor shifted. And so while I was pushing, they started to have some concerns about the baby's heartbeat even though I think it was just that it shifted and it started to pick up my heartbeat instead, because after the baby was born, that's what they told me it may have happened. But there was this drama around the pushing phase of like, this baby, we need to get this baby out right now. They were suggesting episiotomy. They were suggesting forceps. And it, it just felt like, yeah, this huge sense of urgency. Um, and they called every, like they called the doctor in and all these people were rushing in. Um, and I wasn't super concerned, you know, about my baby's well-being in that moment. But I also was like, I know that I need to get this baby out. So I, so I did. She, I pushed her out in 20 minutes, I think it was. She came pretty quickly. And that was exhausting after everything I had been to. I'm so grateful that I had had the rest that I had from, from both the uh, pain relief that was injected and also the epidural. Because even though, you know, there's parts of me that doesn't like the fact that I needed the pain relief, I think in the end, I needed that rest in order to be able to effectively push push her out as quickly as I was able to, because it was such hard physical work to, to push her out. Um, and I felt like I needed to do it really quickly. So, but yeah, she came, she was born at 414, came out, she was six and a half pounds, a little, little super, super skinny thing. And she's the sweetest baby. She's the very, very sweetest baby. Um, and I felt so grateful to be able to have the VBAC and so much relief, you know, that she that she was okay after everything. And um, the doctor who came into the room when they called him in, I think also knew that the monitoring was just kind of funky because he told me in the moment, even before he like got fully involved that my baby was fine. And 
winked at me um, and <laughs> gave my, my husband a thumbs up. And so I was just great. I was grateful for even within like some of the panic, the panic, you know, of the pushing phase and of really the whole pregnancy and the whole birthing experience. I was, you know, grateful for the calm and the peace that I did experience throughout it all. And, and yeah, yeah, she was, she was perfectly healthy. They, I guess, test like the blood of the placenta to make sure that she um, wasn't oxygen deprived more than they would expect a baby to be. And she wasn't. So they didn't have any concerns with her after she was born. They didn't have any concerns of infection for her. Um, the cord was wrapped around her neck multiple times and her whole body. I had the longest cord the midwife had ever seen. And she seemed like she had been practicing for a while. So, but, but, you know, it, I didn't even, I wouldn't have even known had they not told me she was, she was absolutely, absolutely fine. And the midwife gave me a tour of the, I told her that I was interested in seeing the placenta and she was like, oh, that's my favorite and gave me a whole tour of it, um, showed me everything and, and was really enthusiastic about it. And they, they brought me toast and tea for, for me and my doula and my husband um, afterwards, which is like, you know, a, cult, a cultural thing here to have. Um, and that, you know, it was just really also a really sweet moment. Um, and the baby, you know, trying to get the baby to last right away. She just was with me, was with me the whole time. We didn't have to be separated at all. And yeah, it was, it was a good, a good experience in the end. There are some things, you know, looking back that maybe, you know, I would have liked to do differently or I might do differently next time. But in the end, you know, I was, I was processing some of this with my husband just last week kind of in preparation for for knowing that I had this interview and my husband was like but look we got what we wanted and and that's true like you know even if maybe I, I needed more pain relief than I wanted or or um there's different things that maybe were like a little bit more chaotic or, or dramatic in the end we got what we wanted and there are more things about my birth experience that you know that I'm happy with than maybe parts of it that I wish you know maybe were were a little bit different so in the end, it was, it was good. Yeah. Mm, I love it. Sometimes those ends when they're like, it's like, I got to do this right now. They can kind of be really intense, like really intense, but I think it's pretty incredible how we are just capable of like dialing in 150,000% and just getting the job done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I oh. felt like my eyes were going to come out of their sockets. I was pushing so hard. Was pushing so hard. Uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh but, but it wasn't an option. And honestly, I, I really didn't want an episiotomy or the first. So that was also a motivator for me. I was like, I, you know, because I wasn't actually that concerned about my baby. Like there was this piece that I, that, that kind of transcended the whole experience, you know, like a, a piece that I felt that was kind of incongruent with what was going on in the room. Like I almost felt like, okay, I'll get this baby out as quickly as possible to kind of, to keep you all happy. But, but, but my baby's fine and I'm fine, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And then to have the doctor come into the room and basically like kind of reflect back to me what I was already experiencing that my baby's fine. I'm fine. Everything's going to be fine. But, you know, you know, providers see things, they see bad outcomes, you know, probably, you know, you know, more often than they would like to. So, so they, they are kind of geared up, especially in the hospital setting for, for being prepared for, for something going, going south. So I, I don't necessarily fault them for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Well, huge congrats. Love on that little one. Well, thank yeah. you for sharing and taking the time today yeah. to be with us. Madison, is there anything that you wanted to share today as well? I want to make sure we hear your voice before we end. Yeah, I just wanted to say, Megan, the difference in your birth stories and how you really emphasize that, like, you made sure that you got educated the second time around. Like, I, I, I'm a birth educator at a birth center here in the area, and I, that's like my whole thing. Education is the way that you can, first off, minimize birth trauma and second, have your best chance at not only a vaginal birth, but like a positive birth experience. Mm -hmm. Education is so, so important. So I'm just really happy that you did that for yourself and just, yeah, an amazing birth story. I'm so proud of you as a doula. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. The education piece is so important. And even like, I don't think you can educate yourself enough. I really don't because I had educated myself and there were still a lot of things that 
came up, like I wasn't expecting my waters to break before. Like there's still things that come up that you might not know a ton about. And so mm-hmm. I think it's also okay to ask for the education in the moment, which, which, you know, I, I didn't do enough of, but you know, to ask for the information, you know, if you're in a state to do so in the moment, because you can, you can, you can't educate yourself enough. And there's going to be things that will come up that maybe you don't know, know everything mm-hmm. about. And hiring information a well, yes, hiring a well-educated doula is a great way to be able to get that information in the moment too, if you're not comfortable yes. asking questions like to your provider in the moment. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I'm very grateful for my doula. Awesome. Well, thank you ladies for being with us today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Tell us about your experience at the vbacklink.com slash share. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julian Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.